Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This week on Wealth Track, why top strategist Richard Bernstein says investors are looking for risk in all the wrong places. What could hurt you the most is next on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, a leg mason company, Thornburg Investment Management, active management, flexible perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. What is the biggest risk in the markets today? Most investors would say the longevity of the bull market and the elevated prices of stocks. The U.S. stock market hasn't had a bear market correction of 20% or more since its March 2009 low. And stock prices are at the high end of their historic range. Just look at the Schiller P.E. ratio, the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, also known as CAPE, that Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller created years ago to put the price-earnings level of the market into longer-term perspective. CAPE takes the current price of the S&P 500 and divides it by the average of inflation-adjusted S&P earnings over the previous 10 years in order to smooth out cyclical fluctuations in corporate profits. The CAPE at over 30 is at the second highest level since it's been calculated starting in the late 1880s. It's higher than it was in 1929 before the market crashed, although it is considerably lower than its peak in the tech bubble in the late 1990s. Well, this week's guest says by focusing on the stock market, investors are missing where the real risks are. In a recent report, Looking for Risk in All the Wrong Places, strategist and investment advisor Richard Bernstein says by far the biggest risks are in the bond markets. Since inflation bottomed in June of 2016, investors have continued to pour money into bond funds and ETFs. Higher inflation caused by an accelerating economy has led to higher interest rates. As bonds adjust to higher interest rates, their prices decline. Well, that is exactly what has happened. As Bernstein points out, bonds are the only asset class in the U.S. that have experienced negative total return, that's with interest added, since inflation turned up. He predicts much worse results ahead. Richard Bernstein is chief executive and chief investment officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors, which he founded in 2009 and now oversees nearly $10 billion in assets. More than $6 billion is in its equity and multi-asset ETF strategies, available as separately managed accounts through financial advisors. Morningstar now ranks RBA among the 10 largest ETF managed portfolio strategists. RBA also manages mutual funds, including the flagship Eaton Vance Richard Bernstein All Asset Strategy Fund. 
Bernstein developed his top-down macro approach to investing using quantitative analysis as chief investment strategist at Merrill Lynch, where he was voted to the prestigious Institutional Investor All-America Research Team for 18 years and inducted into its Hall of Fame. I asked Bernstein why bonds are at risk for a significant bear market, but stocks are not. I personally would say, I think the bond market today looks like technology stocks in 2000 or housing in 2006, 2007. Oh my goodness. I think that's the level of risk that we're actually talking about. And the reason why is that the economic environment is changing very dramatically, but bond investors have not changed their portfolios one bit. And when I say bond investors, I don't just mean individuals, pensions, endowments, foundations, uh, across the board, the whole investor scale, people's portfolios are still oriented towards disinflation. The unfortunate thing is that inflation has been rising now for two, two and a half years. Inflation expectations are going up, but yet still nobody is uh, repositioning their portfolios. Bear markets usually occur when fundamentals begin to deteriorate and nobody cares. Yep. And that, to me, is what's going on in the bond market right oh, now. So interesting. So even though, you know, I mean, we're looking at the numbers and we're looking at shore inflation is going up, but it's mm-hmm. still quite low. I mean, interest rates are still quite low. We've got right. sovereign debt out there that's still at negative interest rates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for a lot of us, we're saying, well, kind of where's the excess? Well, I think, you know, the excesses are there. They're just not so obvious because yeah. it's, not, it's not like technology stocks, you know, getting in the headlines. It's not like housing in the headlines. And, you know, the bond market's usually kind of much more boring compared to, to other markets and doesn't get the same amount of attention. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the absolute level of inflation is. You know, markets don't care about the absolutes of good or bad. Markets care about better or worse. And you've already seen that in bond returns. So I mentioned inflation expectations mm-hmm. troughed about two, two and a half years ago. Since that trough in June of 2016, stocks are up roughly 45% since that period. Commodities are up roughly 15 to 20%, and bonds have provided a negative total return. Wow, total return. That's with interest so added in. Yeah. Exactly. So uh-huh. if you think about, we're talking... Mm more than 45 percentage points of lost return, and nobody cares. Right. That's incredible to me. I mean, that should be a headline, and you're making it a headline to your clients. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So your flagship ETF strategy, and it's it's a mouthful, Rich. Mm -hmm. It's the Richard Bernstein Global Risk Balance Moderate ETF Strategy. (laughs) has has an allocation of anywhere from 20 to 70% in fixed income. Mm -hmm. So where are you? Right now, now we're about 20 to 25%, depending on whether you include cash or not. We're at about as low as we can go in terms of our fixed income weight. Right. But more importantly, we also have very, very short maturities, very, very short duration, meaning the amount of interest rate sensitivity, very little interest rate sensitivity in our bond portfolio. Um, We're right now about 25 to 30% of benchmark duration. Obviously, every portfolio has a benchmark. For the fixed income side, you can measure the interest rate sensitivity of your benchmark. That would be the duration. Right. We're only about 25% of benchmark duration right now. The studies show this, that the consensus right now is about 90 to 95% of benchmark duration. Huh. So we are incredibly short duration relative to most bond managers. And you do ETFs. Yes. So these are very short-term uh, fixed income ETFs. Correct. What, what does that position do for that portfolio? What, what role does it play? Mm-hmm. So 
look, I think if we could, we might be at zero in fixed income. Yeah. But there's different guidelines. We have many different portfolios. Each one has its own set of guardrails about how much risk you can take. Right. And uh, we can't we can't go to zero in terms of fixed income. But I think if we, if we had the ability, we might actually do that. And so what? So for the individual investors who can make that choice to go mm-hmm. to zero. What's your advice to them? Generally, when people hear somebody like me speak, they say, oh, well, we have to get rid of everything. And, and that's silly. I mean, to say that you're going to re- get rid of all your bonds, get rid of, say, you're going to get rid of all your income-oriented uh, investments, that's silly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's a prudent way to, to right. look at the, to invest and to, to think about investing. Rather, what, what the message that, that I think uh, we're, and what my firm is trying to get out to our investors is that we want to have something in the portfolio that is going to work in a period of rising inflation. That's sort mm-hmm. of anti-income, right? If you think about diversification, the whole point of diversification is to have something that's in the portfolio in case you're wrong. Well, if you're an income investor, that means having something in the portfolio that's anti-income. Mm-hmm. Well, what's anti-income? It would be things like, you know, commodities, uh, pro-inflation sectors of the stock market, all these different things right. that, that I think you'd want to put into a portfolio that the data show people are pretty underweight or ignoring completely. Before we go to these specific strategies mm-hmm. that you're employing, you know, for you were early number one in believing in this bull market, mm-hmm. and you were early in believing that the bull market would be best in U.S. stocks. And you have always told us that this is the least believed bull market like in history. Yeah. Number one, are more people believing in it now? And why has has it been the least believed bull market in history? It's uh, Let's take the, the second part first. Right. Why is it the least uh, loved bull market of all time? I think 2008 generationally scarred investors. Mm-hmm. It was such a horrible period in people's portfolios that and and people were such risk takers that they've now so the needle has swung 180 degrees and now they're completely risk averse mm-hmm. and they believe that if they invest for income as opposed to investing for capital appreciation they're not taking risk in their portfolio right forgetting of course that if everybody believes that something is riskless it becomes exceptionally risky and that's i think where we've gone we've gone from 2000, when nobody wanted dividends, if you think about during the tech bubble, nobody wanted those stinking dividends right. because they showed growth. Yeah, we want growth and everything. And right. now we've come 180 degrees and nobody wants any growth. They just want income. And, and um, so I just think that needle has to be turned back a little bit and think about what is growth going to look like over the next three, five, seven, nine years, whatever period you want to look at. And how do you include something in the portfolio that, that will take advantage of that? Is it too late to be a believer? No, I, I think that certainly it's not March of 09 anymore, right? Where we, you know, I mean, people are not under their desk in the fetal position. That's clearly the best time to invest. And the markets um, are at a very different level as exactly. well. Exactly. I mean, right. you know, we're, we're nine years into a bull market, almost 10 years into the right. bull market. So we have to put this in proper context. We don't want to get too drunk on this notion of getting bullish. Um, however, uh, although we are in a late cycle environment, which is very normal in an economic cycle, it is not late in the cycle, which kind of leads people to believe that the abyss is minutes away. Right. So now, when you say late cycle, I'm thinking, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and okay. I think that's an incorrect way to think about right. it. I think that late cycle environments can go on for a long period of mm-hmm. time. Most importantly, the, the factors that we would look for to signal to us that a bear market is on the horizon 
they're nowhere to be seen. Mm -hmm. And and you know things like deteriorating corporate profits is a, is a prime thing that tells you that the bear market is coming. Corporate profits in the United States are still accelerating. They're still extraordinarily healthy. Um, so I, I think that in and of itself is kind of a hint that we're not, the abyss is not minutes away. Give us the growth story. How have things changed? Right. You know, I think when you talk about a growth story in, in the general economy, I think we have, to, we have to make a subtle but a very important distinction. Are we talking about real economic growth or nominal economic growth? Right. Real growth is what everybody hears. Before hear. inflation. Yeah, before inflation. Nominal growth is real growth plus, plus inflation. inflation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the story going forward is going to be about nominal growth, not real growth. And, and why is that important? Why does that matter so much? It, it matters just simply, if you think about a very simplistic point of view, nominal growth is important because it implies that there's going to be more pricing power in the economy. If there's more pricing power in the economy, corporate profits can actually expand simply by raising prices. Now, to an economist, that's not real growth, but to a stock market investor, that's fine. You know, mm -hmm. profits can be made by either the number of units that you sell or your price per unit. And if your price per unit's going up and I can still sell it, that's called profits. Pricing power is coming back. I'm sure most people are beginning to see this. If you go out and start buying things, you can see prices going up. And um, uh, I, I think that's going to be a big fill-up to, to corporate profits as we go through, you know, the end of 18 into 2019. Right. You know, everybody kind of focuses on what's on the problems and the risks. And certainly mm -hmm. when you're looking at corporate profits, people are talking about you know, trade, I mean, barriers, mm. tariffs are a tax on corporations and individuals. Uh, you know, I mean, t talk about, you know, some of the risks and, and how much uh, of a problem that they present to the to a growth story. Yeah, well, certainly if, it, you know, your worst case scenario, if we take a decision tree and we go down the the, the bad side of the, of the decision tree every single time, yes, the stock market's going to go down with respect to tariffs. But I think what people are missing here just in general, and again, mm -hmm. let's get back to the fixed income notion for a second, that public policy right now, again, not passing judgment whether this is right or wrong, right. I'm just saying public policy is very pro-inflation right now, mm -hmm. uniformly pro-inflation. And um, tax cuts, fiscal stimulus on, I mean, on an already strong economy. Right. That's right. the thing that people don't understand. Very unusual to see tax cuts in the ninth year of an economic cycle to see fiscal spending. I mean, government spending is about seven, eight percent right. year on year in a late cycle environment. Right. That so usually happens in recessions. Exactly. So that's inflationary, right? It is. Typically, that's been very inflationary. And it's, in this time, the reason it's so right. important is because we're already stretching the limits of the U.S. economy. You see this in terms of delays in getting products. If you put in a commercial order right now, the lag times between the order and delivery are the longest virtually in history. Really? Yeah. The product markets are very, very tight right now. Labor markets, first time in my professional career, perhaps in my life, there are more job openings than there are job seekers. The labor markets are very tight and the product markets are very tight. That's normal for a late cycle environment. Mm -hmm. This is, but it's, it's now being exacerbated by the, the tax cuts and the fiscal spending on top of that. And so, you know, it, it, you're not going to alleviate the product problems and the labor market problems by stimulating the economy. Then you'd say, well, what else is going on? Well, again, not passing judgment whether it's right, right or wrong. I know these are all sensitive topics these days. But if you think about whether it's tariffs, which by definition are inflationary, they're supposed to raise prices. Mm -hmm. um, you think about immigration mm -hmm. and not encouraging skilled workers to come into the United States. You think so about that means wages will go up for skilled. You're going to have to pay the, the skilled to pay, workers yeah. more. The 
because Absolutely. there will be fewer of them. Or, Absolutely. Right. It's yeah. just a scarcity of labor like any yeah. other product. Um, you think about Iran, and if we start uh, uh, putting sanctions on, well, we have put sanctions on Iranian oil. There's not enough spare capacity in the world to make up for Iranian oil taking, being taken off the market. That would be inflationary. And you could just go on and on and on and on. Now, again, I understand why these are uh, policies are put in place. I understand the goals. I understand everything else. I don't care. Mm -hmm. My job is to try to make money for my clients. Right. And the investment implication across the board here is that everything we're talking is pro-inflation. Right. So this is this is a big change. It is. And it's of a course, huge you know, those of us who who live through very inflationary times, right, are it, it's this is very worrisome to hear. But you're saying there's a positive to this. So we're not talking about right. stagflation. No. We're not talking about interest rates going up under 30-year on, you know, to 15 percent or whatever it <laughs> no. was in 1981. No. Um, but, but nonetheless, that's going to be, that's the story going forward. So, so wh what do we invest in? What, what are right. pro-inflationary investments? Right. So, on on the equity side, I think you want to look at at sectors that benefit from rising prices. They would typically be things like the material stocks. They would be energy stocks they'd be industrial stocks. Mm -hmm. Those are the three prime winners uh, from a, a rising inflation environment. And, and, and our viewers should know you don't uh, invest in specific stocks. Correct. You, you are in, investing in sectors. Correct. That's so exactly therefore, right. I mean, I'm just looking at some of the sectors that you own in materials, the Vanguard Materials ETF, Industrials, Industrial Select, Spider Fund, Energy, Spider, S&P, Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF. At least these were in the portfolio Correct. recently. So th that's what you're, that's how you're positioning yourself. Correct. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We are, we are, you know, to use the standard term, we're very overweight uh, right. energy materials industrials. I think that's that's kind of an easy way to think about it. Um, and commodities, I, I mean, commodities does, themselves. Th those right. are hard to invest in. So I mean, they you are. know. So um, yes, we are, we do invest in commodity ETFs. Uh, I think they're very good in a pro-inflation environment. Um, I'm not one to give tax advice, but I think before investors actually look at some of these, they have to understand the tax implications mm -hmm. of what some of these uh, ETFs uh, uh, mean or what it, what it could mean for the investor. Um, even gold. I mean, gold has been kind of a bluff investment it has. for an extended period of time now. But if you really think, as I do, that, that uh, you know, inflation is going to be picking up, gold can help a portfolio. Mm -hmm. And it's going to help a portfolio because you think that gold will finally uh, appreciate? Yeah, I think, look. Because it hasn't gold, for the last several years. Right. Gold's, years gold's a very romantic investment. People mm -hmm. always ascribe some magical properties to gold. Gold is just another real asset. Mm -hmm. um, it's like any other commodity, really. And when co why do commodities go up? They usually go up because uh, they're real assets, and real assets appreciate when inflation goes up. Um, and when, when inflation goes down, you want to be in financial assets. When inflation goes up, you want to be in real assets. And, and so gold is just another real asset. I, I don't think there's anything sexier than that. I'm looking at one of the ETFs that is one of your top ETFs. It's the Vanguard Information Technology ETF mm -hmm. um, in, in that uh, balanced portfolio. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why, why uh, information technology? We've, we've been there for a long time. Yeah. This is not a new position for us. And I think when you talk about tech, there's always sort of two things people forget about tech. Number one is that technology is the most foreign exposed sector in the United States by far. Nothing else is even close. Oh, interesting. So mm -hmm. you'll find that tech tends to do reasonably well when the dollar's falling and tends to be under pressure when the dollar's appreciating. But the more important thing that everybody forgets about tech is it is a deep, deep, I'll say it again, deep cyclical sector that is always mistaken for growth. 
There is nothing growthy about technology. It is a huge cyclical sector. This has always been true. It's still true. If you go back to the bear market in 2008, which was not a technology-induced bear market like 2000, right? Technology, you know, the tech bubble in 2000, you know, with that bear market, tech stocks did very poorly. You go to 2008, that bear market was a financial sector, a housing-related bear market. The major tech stocks were down between 55 and 80%. So even the fangs, you don't do individual stocks, but right. even th they're not immune to cycles either. Not at all. Not so, at all. And right, if you think Facebook about and Google, if and, you think about the industries that some yeah. of them are involved in, whether it be advertising or, or retail sales or whatever, since when is advertising and retail sales not a not, cyclical, not cyclical industry? Right. I mean, right. It, but yet people talk as though these companies are infallible, and that that sort of should concern most people. Emerging markets. You've got a position in emerging markets. We do. We do. We've been in emerging markets. Again, some emerging markets are very inflation-oriented, right. commodity-centric, things like that. They do very, very well. Um, I, I would think that, that'd be kind of interesting. The other thing to remember is that, that emerging markets are just a play on global growth. These are, again, everybody talks about them as being growth stocks. They're really deep cyclicals. If you're reasonable bull on global growth, you'd want to have some emerging markets. If you're very wary about global growth, you'd want to lighten up. Why aren't you worried about a stock market, uh, a bear market in, in, the, in, the, in stocks? I would say there's, there's three factors that usually come before uh, a bear market. Number one would be that corporate profits begin to deteriorate. That's clearly not happening now mm -hmm. in the United States. I mean, we could argue whether that's good or bad, but the corporate sector is doing very, very well. Right. Number two, you'd want to see too much liquidity withdrawn by the central bank. What I mean by too much is every central bank is, is trying to slow down the rate of lending and everything in, in various economies. Um, the, the Federal Reserve has, has started to tighten, as everybody knows. Right. It's not that they tighten that causes a bear market. It's that they tighten too much. How do you know when they tighten too much? The yield curve will invert. Short-term interest rates will be higher than long-term interest rates as the, market begins, the bond market begins to anticipate slower growth ahead. That's not happening. Number three... You'd find everybody would be bullish as all get out, mm -hmm. and valuations would reflect that bullishness. Uh, there's no way that people are heady about equities in the United States. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's not they're, happening. They're just not it's there. not yeah. happening. How threatening are the high levels of debt? Yeah, there's, there's two ways to think about this. Number one is corporate debt, and has the amount of corporate debt increased? Of course it has. I mean, interest rates have been low. We're nine years into, a, into, a, right. into an expanding economy. Of course, debt levels should be higher. Uh, I think what you'll find, though, is that coverage ratios, how well their profitability can cover their interest payments, are still very, very healthy. The second thing I would point out about debt is that people have said for a long time that all our national debt, all the debt that we have, is going to ruin the country. And, and yes. that's great drama. I, I love that. It's like all of a sudden we're going to wake up one morning and we're going to be like Botswana or something. You know, I mean, it's, unfortunately, it's not the way it works. But when people can't figure out why we've had a secularly slower growth trend in the United States than we have historically, I would argue the answer is the debt that's hanging over that we have because a lot of core, a lot of U.S. cash flow in total has to go to service the debt. It can't be used for investment. It can't be used to buy things. It can be, and, and so we're already experiencing the overhang of these big debt levels. It's right. just that nobody recognizes yeah. it. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what should we all own some of in a diversified long-term portfolio? Think, I think right now, as I said before, most people are very income-oriented. You want to look for the anti-income. 
Right. Right. It's like if matter and antimatter. What what's the antimatter to your portfolio here? Uh, I think it's something related to commodities. I think you'll find that most, especially individual investors, have very little exposure to commodities. Now you could do that through energy stocks and material stocks. You could do it through a commodity ETF. There's a million different ways to mm -hmm. do it, but I think that's the tack that you should have in a portfolio now. You want something in the portfolio in case I'm actually right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? If I'm wrong, you're pretty well protected. Most people are there already, but if I'm right, you want to have something in that portfolio to protect you. All right, great. Rich Bernstein, so great to have you here. Thank Thanks. you for having me. Thanks for joining us. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is put some inflation beneficiaries in your portfolio. As Rich Bernstein points out, inflation pressures are building from a number of fronts, the growing economy, higher interest rates, tight labor force, increasing debt levels, and punitive trade policies. After a decade of dormant inflation, even seemingly small increases can have an impact. Protecting your purchasing power with investments that keep up with inflation, including companies with a history of rising dividends, can do that. One group mentioned frequently by WealthTrack guests is what is known as the dividend aristocrats, which are companies that have raised their dividends every year for 25 years or more. There are several ETFs built around companies with long histories of increasing dividends. The ProShares S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats ETF, symbol NOBL, is the only ETF that specifically tracks the S&P Dividend Aristocrats with 25-year track records. The Spider S&P Dividend ETF, symbol SDY, chooses companies from the S&P 1500 Composite Index with at least 20 years of dividend increases. Changing circumstances call for portfolio adjustments. Well, next week, financial thought leaders James Grant and Jason Zweig debate active versus passive investing, and if Benjamin Graham's value approach has lost its value. To hear more of our interview with Rich Bernstein, please go to the extra feature on our website, wealthtrack.com, and keep reaching out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend, and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.